Welcome to Mom and Doc Talk, a podcast for health-conscious parents where you get the perspective of a mom and a dad who's also a pediatrician and pediatric emergency physician. Instead of Googling your way through parenting and hoping for the best, get trusted guidance and be the empowered, savvy, and decisive parent you know you can be. Sleep easy when you follow advice tested by doctors and tried by moms and dads. Here are your mom and dad hosts, Dr. Christopher Haynes and Azure Sullivan. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mom and Doc Talk. I am Azure Sullivan. And I'm Dr. Chris, and excited to be back and really excited about this episode. Yeah, me too. Uh, How is everybody doing today? How are you doing, Dr. Chris? Uh, It's been a long day. It's been a long day. It's been a very long day. When he says it's been a long day, that's... It means something. Lots of patience, lots of volume, lots of viruses. By any chance, what is, what's a lot of patience? Um, Just throw a number. I saw 30 plus today in a 12-hour shift. On average, you probably see two patients an hour is about average. I was seeing at times they were coming in in fives and sixes. Okay, so it was a long day. Yeah, and we had a drowning over the weekend, which was very sad. Um, yeah, no so, one likes to talk about those. Yeah, it's it happens, and it usually they're totally preventable, and it's the season for it, and a lot of it is just keeping an eye on your kid at all times. Yeah, I'm sure we can talk a lot more about that in the next episode, uh, Summertime Safety, yeah, that'd be which great. is coming up, which I'm also excited to talk about. Um, so today, what are we, what are we talking about? Uh, I had something on my mind. I was thinking back to when I first got pregnant and um, or even like showing signs that I was pregnant and people are kind of, you know, it's after the point where people are afraid to ask you if you're pregnant. Um, but it's all of this like it it starts with, oh, I remember those days and then they start giving you advice or, you know, it's your friends who have had a couple kids or your aunts and uncles and it's your you know your parents or maybe your grandparents and you get all this unsolicited advice before you even have the child and of course after you have the child it's just a parade of advice do you think that you feel the same way did that happen to you dr chris that absolutely happened to me and probably not as much around medical and i think there's a lot of unsolicited medical advice but i also think there's a lot of there's uh, a, lot, how, a lot of parenting <laughs> advice. I was just thinking, when you say that, I can only imagine you in med school and someone coming up to you and going, did you know? Um, big eye roll. Yeah. Very, very. <laughs> Has it happened very, to you? Um, people, people will tell you to do things. My mother liked to give advice. I mean, not to say that you know everything. We do not know everything. No, Nobody we're human. Knows everything, we're, per- we're, right? we're imperfect. But it is funny, you know, you being being educated all around children and then you know maybe your mother comes up to oh, you she and did says, it all the time so what do you say <laughs> you don't what do you say <laughs> we get in a staring Especially staring a... match when i put my daughter in timeout and she takes her out of timeout yes okay i love those times yeah. those are my favorite times i will, I will never forget it yeah. uh, and so going back to like all of these people who are giving you advice like it's something that's going to happen no matter what and it's something that has to be accepted. And also, a side note, like the whole reason why we're doing this podcast is then you get people who don't even want to tell you. It's, again, that club that you're not allowed in until you have a child that we talked about in the beginning, like that unspoken club. Absolutely. Like, oh, just wait. Just wait. And it's like, well, why don't you just, you know, just tell me if I ask, right? Um, and I think I think the other thing that's important to talk about is there's a lot there's a fair amount of harmful or harm not what I'll call not harmful advice. Not harmful advice. And you know, like basic stuff, some of the stuff we're gonna talk about, and there's very harmful advice that can be given. Yes. And, and you've you've said a couple of those in our previous podcast just by and, some events that Yeah, we'll talk we'll talk about you know, them tonight. Coming in. Um so going off of that, really what we want to discuss, guys, is the advice that is outdated, really outdated advice. So maybe, you know, this is kind of around a lot of our grandparents. And we mentioned this before about, you know, when you have your grandparents babysitting or an older person taking care of your child, that this happens a lot more frequently. And um, not to say that we all get bad advice all ages, right? But we want to kind of get a lot of the common misconceptions and kind of set them straight with 
new medicine techniques and, you know, updated information. And some just basic. And, you know, grandparents, I always tell parents that their advice is extremely valuable. And I've always been jealous that I never had grandmothers. And, you know, I had briefly had my mom when my kids were young. And I think it's important to take what they offer you and really value it, but also understand that things may have changed along the way. And specifically around medicines and bathing and, you know, things are different. Um, you go back and, you know, I'm, I'm a history person and I go back and look at old medical books and you look at things and you're like, oh my God. And if you go back and think about our history, we didn't have antibiotics until the 1940s. Isn't that insane to think about? You know, so, you know, now we, you know, you, you do a telemedicine visit and someone calls in an antibiotic for you. So things have changed dramatically. And, you know, a lot of the things we see, we see parents that arrive in the ER every night because they have fear of something that's happened or they've been told or they've been misguided um, around a lot of different things. So we're going to talk about a lot of these things. And there are so many more that we won't talk about, but we're just going to hit the tip of the iceberg, really. Uh, I mean, I've I've been around a, so many kids since the past 23 years. And like, even just that amount of time, I've seen, heard, talked about like totally outdated advice, even like when it was happening then, like, you know, 15 years ago, like, oh, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what you do. But now I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe that that happened. I would also offer that if our listeners have a question, email us. We get emails all the time. Oh, yeah. We're happy to talk about them. We're happy to talk about them in future future podcasts and really talk through them. If you're getting a piece of advice, you're not sure, you know, you can either reach out to us or you can reach out to Dr. Google. And Dr. Mm -hmm. Google may not be the best advice. And there's good data that shows that maybe somewhere in the vicinity of 50 to 60% of what you read is not correct. Um, and there's a lot out there, you know, it's like walking through a snowstorm trying to figure out, you know, how do I get to the other side and understand what's right and what's wrong. And that's why we did this. One of the things I was told, you know, in passing was it's kind of one of two ways. One is, you know, don't overbathe your kid. Like don't, oh yeah, you can wait like a whole week to bathe your child. And then the other is you have to bathe them every day. And Neither of those. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's an in between, and I, I'd ask you: Have you ever smelled a stinky baby? It's pretty rare. They have that good baby smell. Yeah, and, and I'm they, gonna say you have smelled that more than me. I can tell you, I've rarely smelled a stinky baby. Um, you know, and they don't sweat like adults do. You know, they don't have the same sweat glands, and it's if you have adolescent kids, it's usually sour milk. <clears throat> or uh, like spit up smell. Exactly. And it's not the rancid smell you get with a teenager that's played six baseball games and stinks. And, you know, Ew. we see those kids all the time. But, you know, I, there's bathing is a, is a middle ground and they really only need it every few days. And, you know, that's in, with the exception of you have the normal, you know, diaper blowout, you know, you might need to. And I've had my kids in the shower where I've had to wipe them down after diapers went everywhere. Mm -hmm. So you might need to do it more often if that happens. But, you know, really two to three, every two to three days is fine. Every other day is fine. And what happens if you bathe too much, you're going to dry their skin out. And it can lead to eczema. It can lead to a lot of different skin problems. And just really what eczema is, is really dry skin that's irritated. And really the other key is, you know, really having that, either that bath and then using moisturizer. Not only ba bathing them just the, uh, two to three days, but just to avoid bathing them so frequently is to just change their clothes uh, multiple times in a day. So if they spit up, just change your shirt. If they spit up again, change it again. And this really helps keep them smelling good, staying clean, and also moisture around a lot of their little rolls and keeping them dry. Yeah, I also think it's it's really contact for the baby when you're moisturizing a baby. And it's you can make that even part of the bedtime routine. And you'll have babies, you know, they're really getting a little bit of a massage at the same time. It allows them to kind of wind down and my experience is babies do much better and parents I've talked to said they do much better. It also really keeps them in a better place from a skin standpoint. 
Um, you know, we there's lots of different moisturizers out there. Eucerin is probably one of the best. Something fragrance free. Yeah, and, and and really hypoallergenic is really important as well. So try not to go to bed. What is it? Not Bed Bath & Beyond. I was going to say Bath, bath & Body Works. Probably a place to avoid when yeah, you... Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Depends on your child. Everything. I'm a big believer of everything in moderation. So just be careful that you're not going to get a reaction. You know, Next thing you know, we'll have a, a kid in the ER that's had a reaction to a typical chemical or a fragrance mm-hmm. and just being really, really careful. And now that you mentioned the little bedtime routine, this is my one of our next my, one of my next things that I want to discuss is that babies sleep the best in a dark and quiet room. It varies by baby, and definitely true. Certainly, if you have more than one child, each kid's different. And some kids, you know, you treat your second kid very different than you treat your first. As parents, we all know that. And, you know, different children need different things. And just like we do, um, I sleep like the dead. Um, I wish. And I can, you know, part of probably going through residency and fellowship, if you give me five minutes, I'm asleep. And I'll sleep for the next six hours. I want that to be my superpower. Uh, (laughs) Maybe someday. Um, but you know, there are kids who are really light sleepers or kids that are really heavy sleepers. I think it works so well to keep them in, especially during the summertime and wintertime, how everything changes with the light, the dark so quickly. Like I could barely get, you know, my daughter to wind down at nine o'clock cause it was still bright time, bright, uh, daylight and bright at that time. And she's like, oh, it's, you know, it's time to play, you know, um, same thing with winter. Everyone gets sleepy and tired early. It also depends on the age and think about, I I would agree with you, and certainly daylight savings, which may be going away in the United States, um, is a really big impact on kids and it can make them wake up earlier in the morning, especially in the summertime. Blackout curtains, everybody. I think thinking about the environment they came from, right? Yeah. They, They came out of a dark, warm you know, you want the temperature generally to be between 68 to 72 degrees. A little bit on the cooler side is probably better for sleep. and Especially because we don't want to wrap them up with blankets, newborns especially. Exactly. For safety reasons. As yes, safety as, reasons. As we've talked about. But, you know, a little bit of background noise, you know, certainly um, noise, noise machines. I, I mean, love think sound about, machines. You know, they're they're inside in it's the so womb. It's so noisy. And there's, there is noise. There's a ton of noise. We don't think about it. There's the heartbeat. Exactly. We hear outside discussions. We hear everything else going on outside of mom's body. And, and and that's exactly from my standpoint. I think it's probably the best advice is try to create. Most babies do well in a what I'll call womb-like environment, right? Um, we're talking about rooms, but it's a womb, right? They're coming out of inside you. And how do you simulate that? You know, you want them in your crib. You don't want extra things in the crib. It's a SIDS risk, and we've talked about that in previous podcasts. But temperatures, probably 68 to 72 degrees like we talked about. Um, you talked about blackout curtains. Blackout curtains. So you're going to be able to control the light. You know, a lot, of the, a lot of the times I like to do to make sure that they sleep better through the entire night is during nap time to have it mildly dark during nap time and then completely dark at yeah, bedtime so they know exactly when it is bedtime and that they shouldn't be waking up every 30 minutes or every two hours. Also, the sound machines really, really help with letting them know that it is bedtime, calming them down, relaxing them, and gets them on that sleep schedule that we talked about. Yeah, and I think that's you know, routine is really key. And we're going to have an entirely different podcast on sleep and routine and how to go through that and really how to, you know, how to deal with sleepers that are not good sleepers. Um, But that routine is really important. And if it happens to be a bath that night and what do you follow it with and how do you get them into that environment? And I think you're right on with that a little bit of light versus, okay, it's nighttime and it's light right now. Uh, Really, really important. Plus, if you have a sound machine, you can do the dishes, vacuum, do your normal activities and don't feel like you're limited because you, everyone has to be quiet. Don't wake the baby to a, to a uh, you know, a, an extent. And I also think it's really important, especially for expecting parents and new parents. You know, I get parents who come in in the middle of the night. 
they're they're scared to t- some of the dads are scared to touch the baby. They won't go near the baby. And you know, I think learning some of the things we're talking about really important and will st- really prevent you from dealing with some of the potholes that other people have gone through. And, you know, you're going to hear grandma and she's going to say, you know what, they have to be sleeping in the light during their nap. You know, it has to be completely dark at night. Each baby's different. And, you know, keep in mind that both, I say this more moms than dads don't, dads don't really have the maternal instincts. And I always joke that dads don't really have a job for the first six to eight weeks, but moms, even first time moms, have really good instincts and trust your instincts and trust your baby. Don't overthink it. Don't over Google it. Um, use, use what you know. It's there and babies have done well for you know, thousands of years. My next one, Dr. Chris, have you heard of the not letting your baby bounce on your lap because it can cause bow-leggedness? Yeah, we hear this all the time and We hear this with shoes. We hear this with standing. They shouldn't stand too early. And it used to be thought that if you let them stand, most babies start to walk right around 12 months. And they'll start to kind of pull themselves up. You know, it's not uncommon for 10 to 12 months somewhere in that ballpark. And they start to cruise. They start to go from piece of furniture to piece of furniture. And that's another whole ball game. You know, at that point now you have a house that's dangerous. And they fall and they they move around. But... It is really not true that a child will become bow-legged, either from bouncing on you um, or standing. And really, it's good for them. It teaches them balance. They're learning balance. It's part of their development, and they will continue to go forward. So really helping them balance, helping them to stand, really helping that center of gravity is really important. It's also bonding. And I used to do it with my kids all the time. My kids probably walked right around 11 months, both of them. And, you know, some early, you know, if you tell me your kid's standing and walking at six months, there's a problem. Um, I've heard that before. It's it's not going to happen. They're not developmentally ready to do it. Um, but you will get kids and definitely let them stand. It's not a problem. Give them that exercise, the practice. This next one that I love, one of the, is one of my favorite ones. I, all I have to say is Mozart, baby Mozart. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I... Listening to classical music will raise your baby's IQ in the womb, in the womb, outside of the womb. You know, there are phenoms out there that may be in college by the time they're eight, um, but the likelihood and the data shows that, you know, listening to classical music is not really going to increase that IQ. It's not going to change anything. It may allow them to appreciate music and the question is are they really appreciating when they're inside and when they're out you know is that music in the background certainly music is calming Um, it's that noise but it's not going to impact the iq in any way i've heard of the tapping too if i tap one two three like a horse you know i make them count i tap on my stomach like oh if you count to 10 and practice then that will so they're going to kind come out talking to giving uh, you stepping counting get, counting to 10 when they come out. Yep, yeah, uh, giving them stepping stones and bridging those, you know, the making the connectors in your brain like oh, I'm going to count to 10 sooner than everyone else. Uh, I think it's really important and you know, we've talked about in other episodes how you can help your child speak and how you can assist them with various different things, but that's an old wives tale and certainly many of the things we've talked about such as bow legs and standing too early is absolutely one as well and you know i go back to one of the things that i saw i'll never forget it as long as i live in fellowship i had a child that came in child had a fever for days and grandma decided that they were going to do isopropyl alcohol baths and told mom that that was appropriate and Really, it used to be something that was done in the 40s and the 50s, and I think some people got away with it, but what can happen is you can absorb the alcohol through your skin, and it can drop your temperature really, really quickly. And unfortunately, the kid that I treated had had the the alcohol go through their skin, and it became toxic, and the child had a seizure as a result. Um, The child was very sick, needing an intensive care unit. And that's an example of some of the things that we see that unfortunately they're passed down and there's not a lot of understanding around it. So not doing something, you know, always check with your pediatrician. If you're not sure, 
call your pediatrician. They should have office, you know, they should have someone on call 24 hours a day. Absolutely. Call them in the middle of the night, call them early in the day, anytime. You should have their phone number on speed dial. Exactly. And, you know, I will tell you, you know, my frustration sometimes is when I have parents who come in and, you know, I always ask, who's your pediatrician? And I can tell, you know, right off the bat, I don't really know who that my pediatrician is, and they're digging for cards in their in their wallet. That's a little scary from my standpoint. So really knowing your pediatrician is really, really important. And like I've said before, use them as your guide. Use them as their quarterback. They're not going to tell you to do something bad, and it's really only going to help and protect your child. Absolutely. I second that. And not only knowing your pediatrician is important, but getting to know your baby kind of what Dr. Chris said earlier is really important. And with that, I mean, when your baby is crying, this other, I don't want to call them a myth, but one of these things that people said a lot in the past is, you know, if you pick your child up every time, you know, every every time they cry, you're spoiling them. And this is one of those things that you just need to know your child. And I know that sounds like, well, of course, I'd have to like pick them up every time and see what they want, what they need. Um, basically what they're asking for, what what are they what do they want at that very moment? And kind of getting to know their body language, I guess, right? Is I want to say it. And but- and seeing like, okay, so I know when they're hungry, I you know, going back to that routine really. I think that, you know, I think the hardest time is when a baby's just born. I know and they're so small and cute. What's well, not that you don't you don't have a rapport with them yet. You're just learning. Absolutely. You're right? getting to know each other. And and I have parents who come in and, you know, crying is a really big complaint. And, you know, it's... They don't know when too much is too much. Oh, uh, we've talked about colic and what is colic. And colic is, you know, several days a week for four hours a day for two to three weeks. That's a lot of crying, right? There also are different types of crying. And, you know, there is, like you talked about, right? You know it. It's a it's a hunger cry, right? There's that different cry for different things, and you're going to pick them up. And babies really cry because they're trying to communicate. They don't have a way to communicate, and it's not always that they want to be picked up. They may need something else. And there are times where you're going to let your baby cry it out. This uh, is the part that we're talking about is that, oh, every time you pick them up, you're spoiling them. No, and that's, again, not necessarily in the beginning because, again, you're trying to understand what they're trying to say to you. You don't know. You don't really know. And they're not on a routine. They're not on a schedule. They're not sleeping through the night yet. And you get concerned or, again, your first-time parent, so scared maybe. It's a balance. And are you really going to spoil them by picking them up too much when they're young? Probably not. But – if that continues over time, and I think it's looking at a spectrum, and it's looking at young babies versus a six-month-old baby. Absolutely. You know, and that's what we talk about with sleeping through the night, right? If your baby's not sleeping through the night at eight, nine months of age and cries and you go in, that's a, probably a parental behavior and not a baby behavior because they really want mom to come in and snuggle them at two o'clock in the morning. I would too. Right? So, of course, I would. It's great. <laughs> I would someone but, snuggle me at two in the morning. But it's very different. <laughs> with a two-month-old very much when, so. when they're crying. Absolutely. And I think it's understanding that. And, you know, pediatricians kind of look at things, you know, we worry about under three-month-olds, you know, because their, what we'll call their repertoire of communication is not the greatest, right? They, they cry, they eat, they sleep. That's really what they do. And, you know, it's, I think, a good time to talk about what is, what does a healthy baby look like? What are the signs of a healthy baby? Right. So from my perspective, when I have a parent come in, I always tell them, you know, we look at certain things. Are they sleeping well? Are they sleeping the time that they should? Are they not good if they're sleeping too long? You know, if you have a newborn that's sleeping six hours, there's a problem. They should probably be in that four hour range and they shouldn't go longer than that because their blood sugar can get low. You know, are they peeing? You know, really, what do we care about? I care if they're peeing, they're pooping, they're eating and they're sleeping. You know, I always joke with parents and I've been taught this since I was early in my training, a yawning baby is a happy baby. Um, they're comfortable. They're interacting with you. You're easily consolable. They're not cranky. They're not irritable. But as a parent, you're going to know if the cry is off and when too much crying is is not enough or is, is really just too much. 
And we mentioned it before, the schedules, getting them on the a routine and they will cry less and they'll be able, you'll be able to understand how they're communicating with you more and more as they get older. And I think it's important. There's lots of soothing strategies out there and things that you can do. And we'll talk about them in later podcasts around sleep and, you know, crying and, you know, crying from my perspective as a pediatric emergency physician, I have kids that come in all the time with crying and I work from head to toe. You know, I think about injuries. I think about, are they having a respiratory difficulty? I think about hair tourniquets. Some people may have never even known what a hair tourniquet is, but we have kids come in all the time. One of the things that I always tell parents is, you know, are they, are they acting funny around their eyes? You know, could they have scratched their eye with their fingernails? Um, for our listeners, a hair tourniquet is a piece of hair that gets wrapped around a toe or a penis or a finger and it literally can dig all the way down to the bone. Um, it can be very painful and get infected. So, and it's very easy to miss. Um, parents come in, they say, I just found it and it's down to the bone. It's been there for days. Um, so there's lots of things to think about and there's other topics that we're going to address in different episodes, but I think it's important to think about what's normal, what's not normal. And I would always tell a parent, and I tell people this in the emergency department, if your gut tells you something's wrong, go get evaluated. Call your doctor on the phone. We will never, ever fault you for that, especially with young babies and really with anyone. Uh, we're here to help you. And talking about your uh, babies waking up in the middle of the night, you know, or holding them too much, too frequently, or being too scared to, you know, turn down that cry um you know maybe they have a wet diaper maybe they have a poopy diaper maybe you're concerned like oh i'm gonna go in and i need to make sure everything is okay i mean them being in a wet diaper is not the end of the world right absolutely not so being in a poopy diaper is absolutely so one of those things that has been said is you know make sure that they they're dry the entire night i've heard that yeah, and certainly I've heard it as well, and I've heard of parents that are, you know set an alarm clock at three in the morning every night and go in and check for wet diapers. Now, of course, we think I wouldn't want to sit in a wet di wet diaper all night, right? Oh, I can get an infection, or I'm you know I just would it would be uncomfortable to me. But and I'm going to let you answer this, Doctor Chris, about you know urine is not the one to be care to be uh to be concerned about. Yeah, you know, look, kids are going to wake up with poopy diapers. They're going to wake up with wet diapers as well. But urine is sterile. And, you know, as long as they're not sitting in it for a long period of time, they're not going to have a problem. And what are the problems if you sit in it for too long? You can get urinary tract infections, especially girls. And you can get skin issues. And you can get diaper rashes or a diaper dermatitis. And if you really sit in it and it's wet all the time, you can get fungal diaper dermatitis, um, which can be a problem. And, you know, what does diaper dermatitis look like? It looks like redness. And if you think about fungal or candidal, which we call it a different type of fungus, it's red, but we have these things we call satellite lesions, and they look like little red spots coming off the main area of redness. But that really can be from, I would say, sitting in diapers all the time that are wet. And you can get it for other reasons as well. But honestly, urine is sterile. You should not be. It's definitely a myth that you need to go wake your baby up. And, you know, I like the concept, never wake a sleeping baby. Um, certainly there are times when they're very young, and we've talked about that. But you do not need to go into their rooms or wherever they're, you know, their bassinet and wake them up in the middle of the night. Absolutely. I, I, if, if there's no noise, no sound, then I'm definitely avoiding that. <laughs> so one of the things that I see all the time and this boggles my mind and sometimes is perpetuated by pediatricians as well is rice cereal. And that's if your baby's bottle fed. And have you ever had that? Any any of your friends using rice sealer in their bottles? Oh, well? absolutely. And why did they tell you they did it? They told me they did it because it is a filler, uh, and that they will be. It, it's more nutritious. I've heard that. It, it's so it's interesting, and I hear that all the time. I hear it for crying that it'll help crying. Um, I hear it will fill them as well. Um, and 
you know, it's interesting. It's really a solid and they're not really ready to handle it. It doesn't dissolve. No, it's it's people think that, oh, I shake it in there and it's gonna dissolve, but then they it, it clogs it can clog nipples and it's it's really heavy and it doesn't dissolve. And so think about it really as a solid. And, you know, there is research out there that suggests that babies who are given solid before four months are actually don't sleep as well. I mean, that's the same thing as saying if I just blended up a bunch of raspberries and fed it to yeah. a baby, that's still solid. It's still solid food. I, I think the concept is everything you get from formula. And obviously, we're having lots of formula issues in the United States. It's hard to get. And hopefully that ends soon. Um, but your baby's getting everything they need from that formula. And, you know, I think that going back to those solids, they really shouldn't be introduced till about four to six months. What, what's your experience with introducing solids and what's been successful for you? Definitely um, what, I, what I thought the best was is first talking to my pediatrician and saying, this is my pathway. This is what I want to do. This is this is what I'm thinking about introducing to them and making sure that they're on the same page, like we're on the same page with each other. So and then kind of like almost like a birthing plan. You had like a yeah, absolutely. A, a solid introduce, introduction absolutely. plan of what that was like. And Be- certainly that's changed, but go on. Yeah, I mean, because again, we don't know everything. And as much as I know I, you know, I was very confident what I was gonna do was was the right path and the right choice. But I wanted to make sure my pediatrician knew what I was doing and what my daughter was doing. Uh, what she was eating when she was coming into visits and I'm saying this is exactly what I plan on doing and she's like absolutely this is great awesome thank you for telling me right at least notifying her because many parents don't they just do it and then they come in and go oh I was feeding them at three months solid food Um, but I definitely started between that four to six month range um, around five months was you know very simple things and again something that is less likely to cause an allergic reaction. A lot of times that is avocado or something that is, and that that you know that one was enough for you know one 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 color a week or one food a week gives you plenty of time to decide if that caused an allergy or uh, you know something went wrong or you know, any of those things. And I did what was called baby led weaning, which I think is amazing. I didn't do pureed foods or mash it up. I just literally handed it to her on a plate and let her introduce it to herself at her own pace, feeling the texture, looking at it, going, this is definitely not breast milk. And this is, you know, not formula. Um, How did it go? Was it, you know, oh, like, it's my hilarious. Kids, my kids never went through that. I mean, much. the funny thing is, your babies are watching you eat. And I'm sure that we've all been in a situation where we were eating and they're watching like a tennis, like it's almost like a tennis court in a a tennis match, like watching the ball go back and forth. They're watching my fork or my spoon go into my mouth, go back to the plate, pick up something, put it back into my mouth. And they're learning this motion and they don't know what it is because it's not this white-ish substance that's liquid. And it's not in a bottle, and they're curious. And sometimes babies will grab at it and go, "You know, what is this?" They're, they're trying to figure it out, and they put it in their mouth, or they, you know. And that was part of it. Me saying, "You know, this isn't again going back to the speech. This is an avocado, and this is, you know, a solid food." And talking to her, like, you know, of course, like she knows this already, but um, this is, you know, here, touch it, grab it, feel it, play with it. And her face was priceless, and it was the funniest thing ever. Um, you know, they put it in their mouth, and they're like, what is this? Am I allowed to eat this? Should I eat this? And, you know, you do it for a few minutes a day, maybe a couple times a day, and see how they go with it. Sometimes they just, like, spit it out. They don't like it. Try again the next day. Um, and you work with that, and then you change it up the next, next week, you know, uh, a different food, different texture maybe an applesauce. Um, and how does she eat now? How does she eat now? My yeah. daughter, I don't know a single thing she does not like to eat. I give her everything. Yeah. But she also, I've also practiced her using a t- utensil at a very young age. Even if I knew she couldn't physically, was like not ready for it. Like I still gave her a small tiny spoon and fork 
and put it in her hand and let her try to practice with it at a very young age, you know, six months old, very, very you had little. It on the wall, on the floor. No, she was actually really good about the, you know, and I would just guide her elbow. And she was so good at using a utensil. And I will say she was like perfect at using a fork and a spoon by like one. Like she was fantastic. And then I got her into chopsticks. And that was another How did thing. That go? Yeah, you start with like the rubber band chopsticks um, where they're like the kid you know, you have some, I can't, it's hard to describe. You have it tied at the top. So it looks like a, there's just a kid's version. Yeah. Uh, so that they can, and then getting it into where she does it solo and she's using chopsticks perfectly, you know, you know, you know, a couple months later. And I like, you know, develop brain development, helping motor skills, all of those things. Wonderful for her, even if they don't do it. Great on the first try. It sounds like you were super patient. You have to be patient. You allowed her to explore, and it's a lot of fun too. And you know, I'm just thinking uh, there are lots of adults that don't know how to use chopsticks, so um, it's fun doing it together. Especially if you don't know as a parent, trying to do it together, work on your motor skills together. It's a lot of fun, and again, being super patient. So the baby led weaning was fabulous for her, and. Uh, I've known a couple of my friends who do the same thing with their kid and they absolutely loved it. And again, let's, I mean, I also didn't like the idea of pureeing foods because it was an extra step, but again, choking hazards. So do things that are small pieces, don't choke on them soft. That's a lot of work. It is, it is very important. Um, but it, it also gives them the motion like, oh, I'm chewing and you know, their gums, they have only a few teeth at this time. Their gums will do the rest of the work. And, you know, it really gets them into the, oh, I'm chewing. I'm not sucking down fluid. Yeah. And I want to kind of circle back again. And, you know, I've had parents that have come in and really tried to feed baby solids at two months and three months. And we've talked about this. Be really careful. It's not something that's recommended. And, you know, it ties to other things. And a lot of one thing you do impacts something else. And it makes me think of a case I saw a while ago of a mom that was feeding her baby 10 to 12 ounces every hour and a half to two hours of formula. And she was being told by grandma that she needed more and more and more. And babies will suck down a lot. And she couldn't really understand, and she did after we talked to her for a long period of time, she came in with the chief complaint of, of vomiting and diarrhea. Well, yeah, if you think about it and, you know, if I do some quick multiplication and you're feeding, what, 12 times a day at 12 ounces, she was feeding around the clock and this was a three-month-old. You know, you're talking 144 ounces. I, I beg anybody that's even listening to try to drink 144 ounces at, at that clip, 12 ounces every two hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't do it. So if you're overfeeding, that can lead to crying, it can lead to vomiting, it can lead to diarrhea. Like you said, one thing, you know, may not be directly like, you know, it's one thing that leads to another. Correct. And what I was getting at is when you, and the research has shown, if you introduce solids early, you know, and grandma might say, you know, well, I did it, you know. It's always, well, I did it. Yeah, that is. I hear that. And I've seen... Tragedies. I did it and I was fine. I've seen tragedies and I've seen near misses many, many times and a lot of the things that grandma did or was done in the past that was not researched. And, you know, one of the good things we know now is that if you do give solids early, that you're going to probably have some sleep issues. You're not going to sleep as well as babies that, you know, if they're formula fed without rice cereal, they feed better than they would if they have rice cereal in it. And parents are still putting rice cereal in to get them to sleep better. So the literature is very clear. And, you know, the other big thing is that if introduction of solids really early in life um, can, there's some correlation between obesity later in life. Um, And certainly overfeeding can do that and introduction of solids can do it as well. Because you're stretching, you're basically feeding them a heavy substance, kind of stretching their stomach basically making them feel like they're hungrier later. Yeah, and I, so and you I, keep feeding them, feeding them, feeding them. And I, I ask you this question. I think you know the answer to this. What is the size of baby's stomach? It is the size of their fist. Absolutely. So think about what... And we, we, I've mentioned that before. With, I think you asked me about portion sizing for baby or children in general. Yeah. You know, when you're like, how do I know how much to feed my one-year-old? Well, look at their size of their fist, kind of go from there. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly it's not going to be perfect. And, you know, one of the things... That's a starting point. You know, one of the other reasons I brought up the the feeding schedule was we get a lot of parents that, what I would say, were told you have to be on a super strict feeding schedule. And I'm curious what your experience was. So I did keep my daughter on a a strict feeding schedule, not super strict, but more of like the timing the time that I fed her, not necessarily the quantity. Because just like you and me, I had a really, really exhausting play day. I was playing soccer all day or, and I came in and I actually ate more calories because I was burning more calories. And it's really all relative to what you're doing and your activities. So yeah, it was a really strict uh, eating schedule. So she knew when, hey, like, okay, I, I supposed to eat now maybe it was like 10 minutes earlier because we had a you know or you know a big day really adventurous day she saw a lot of people um she may have been a little hungrier or maybe i noticed that she sucked down her breast milk really fast and i'm like oh she's but it sounds like you had hungry. it sounds like you had flexibility i was just about to say that it was flexible so again going back to knowing your child and saying like, oh, okay, today you seem like you're really hungry, but this isn't an everyday thing. This isn't an every, you know, week thing. Like it's very, it's it's based off of a lot of factors. Well, I'll take my dad hat off for a minute and put my pediatrician hat on for a second. And, you know, I kind of flip back and forth and babies really have what are hunger cues, right? And it's, it really, those cues tell them when they're hungry and when they're full, right? And, you know, some days they have them, sometimes they don't. Um, you know, one of the things that's really important is by not being flexible, you can really impact their healthy eating habits over a longer period of time and throughout life. Um, if you're really, you know, look, at 6 p.m., you need to eat your breast milk right now. Um, if they're not having those hunger cues and they're not hungry, you know, babies do a lot of what I'll call, they do some really cool things. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but, you know, they change over time. You know, their metabolism changes over time. So they may need more calories at a certain period. And it, it ties to a lot of different things. And, you know, I was always amazed. You know, I, I was a pediatrician before I had children. And for a couple of years, and then I had children while I was a pediatrician. I think I became a better pediatrician for it and a better pediatric ER doctor for it. But, you know, learning when they need to eat and thinking about how they change over time. And one of the big things, for instance, is pooping. I was just about to say, we're talking about all this eating and you were talking about, um, oh, I want you to, what did you say? Pee, sleep, eat, poop. And yeah. now, yeah, the pooping part. My, my kids think it's hysterical. My my adolescent children, they use the word poop. And they're like, Dad. <laughs> what else are we going to say? Uh, we're pediatricians. What, yeah. No, but what, they're really, what are we going to say to your, what do we say to our kids? Oh, bowel movements. They but, don't say that to their friends. I don't know. I don't want to know what they say. It's, prob <laughs> it's probably more R-rated for the show uh, than, yeah. than we should talk about. Um, but, you know, one of the things is we're talking about, right, do babies poop every day? And does your child poop every day? Not always. And Not always. And your baby was was breastfed. Oh, you mean my baby? My you said child. So we're talking. Yeah. About so infant. when, so when, infant, you, when oh, your yeah. child was an it was an it infant. was it was so um it was maybe one day one time a day it could be two times a day yeah and again going back to knowing what your kid is that they have these apps that kind of help you to count uh, monitor how frequent they're urinating when they're having bowel movements and this kind of helps you keep track with mom brain dad brain. Yeah, but so, keep, keep it in a keep it in context, right? So the app's great, and I love them. I think you're absolutely right on. But I would also add, if something's off for a day, and that's kind of what we're talking about, right? If mm -hmm. it's off for a day, if you're not sure, call your pediatrician. Yeah, first You don't need to first. run right to the emergency department and say, my child's constipated and they've not pooped in 12 hours. Mm -hmm. um, we see that every day. I mean, give them some time to tell. You know, it, it's doing with their body. I mean, my body is not literally the same every day. Of course. So maybe their body is just you, ha you, you know, you have to give them some time to kind of give them that flexibility of fluctuation. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the really keys that we see, and this is one of the myths, is you have to poop every day. Right. Totally not true. And it's 
tied to a lot of different things. And, you know, there's a difference and it varies, right? You have infants, you then have, you know, what are we calling infants, newborns, up to a couple months. Mm-hmm. And then you have babies and then you have toddlers. And it changes for each stage, right? If you have, you know, I always used to talk about it, you know, big people poop. You know, you get real poop. You're really changing diapers when they're when they have solids. Things change dramatically when they have solids. But infants, you know, they should have yellow seedy diapers. And it also depends on whether they're breastfed or they're bottle fed. Mm-hmm. They should never be black. They shouldn't be red. They shouldn't be, you know, fluorescent. Um, then you need to get your pediatrician involved. But one of the things that I'm always amazed at is there's something called an iliocolic reflex. And it ties to your ilium, exits your stomach, and your colon is the colic part of it. So when you're, as a baby, when your ilium stimulated, you poop. And it's very frequent. That's why many babies will poop six, eight times a day um, because they have that reflex that's there and they'll slowly start to outgrow it. Some adults still have it too. Um, (laughs) But I think my teenage son still has it. Um, But, you know... There are times also where we talk about metabolism and really what does that mean? Your metabolic rate goes up and they're absorbing everything. So it might be normal for them to go three, four, five days without having a bowel movement because they're absorbing everything. One of the things that I know you've mentioned is about parents when kind of going off of like I guess making this, what am I about to say, making this a routine and like a norm. And then when they talk about it, you say, oh, this is not a normal thing. Like when they're fed uh, bottles of juice and then they end up pooping a lot because of it. We have kids that certainly are overfed juice. And I'd have to go back and double check but the American Academy of Pediatrics, I believe, recommends no more than six ounces a day of juice. You certainly want it to be real juice if you can make it that way. Um, however, I have kids that are getting easily 30, 40 ounces of juice a day. And there's a lot of impact of that. First of all, it's pure sugar. Um, and you're going to have a child that is heavy that may have impacts later in life leading towards obesity for one. And then we have kids that come in all the time that parents rush in for a bloody diaper. And I take one look at the diaper and I'm like, that's juice. Cause it comes right out the other end when they're being overfed juice. Um, you know, other things that can do that are certainly berries and things like that as well. And kids will, I had a kid the other day that grandma, let him eat four or five containers of raspberries. He loved the raspberries and she didn't do anything wrong. He just enjoyed them. But then he came in pooping raspberries <laughs> and they thought it was a bloody diaper. And we have the ability to test for it. And there's some antibiotics that will also, Omnicef can turn your um, your urine red and look like bloody diapers as well. Um, and it's an antibiotic. But, you know, juice, I think, is not the best thing. Um, you can certainly give them more and you can dilute it um, as they get older, and you certainly don't want to be giving juice when they're when they're young babies. And I'm looking at your face, and I'm thinking, I know exactly what you're you want to say next about what not to give them, especially during the summertime. Do you? Am I right? I know exactly yeah, what you're going to say. Absolutely, <laughs> it's 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 the bane of my existence. Water. And you you do not so babies that are breastfed and babies that are formula fed get adequate amount of water from what they're getting and it doesn't necessarily have to be summer it can be winter as well but if you give a baby too much water you can dilute the salt that's in their blood and the problem with that is it leads to seizures we call them hyponatremic seizures and natremic means salt and Babies can have lots and lots of problems. I'll give you an example, and this is far on the extreme of examples, but we had a mom who was struggling um, with mental health, and she was struggling financially as well, and very sad, and she didn't have enough formula. She had acquired a big orange igloo cooler like you see on the side of a football game. She was putting one full bottle of formula, like a big powdered formula in 
a multi-gallon container that you would see people drinking Gatorade. You mean the canister is a formula, right? A canister formula in a 30-gallon igloo, big orange one that you see poured over coaches. And she was dispensing it out of that. It was sitting there for days. So it was going bad because formula goes bad quickly if it's not refrigerated and it just doesn't last that long. She actually got away with it not getting sick that way, but you're not making the formula correctly. And we see, we call them formula misadventures. And this was probably the extreme of a formula misadventure and not following the instructions with formula and making it properly. And the directions are on the back of the canister. Correct. And they should be followed to the T. And you don't want to add, oh, I'm going to add an extra eight ounces of water and dilute it um, because it's hot. That will lead to those hyponatremic seizures, and you definitely want to avoid it. Um, It also goes back to how we dress our babies. You know, grandmas, you know, you need two extra layers. I have kids come in the wintertime that look like, you know, they just came out of the Arctic. And, you know, it's 50 degrees outside, and they're in a snowsuit. not uncommonly, mom and grandma are together, and you know, mom looks at me and said, Grandma said he needed the snowsuit. And don't get me wrong, grandmas are awesome. Um, but use your instinct, and we've talked about this before, and you've talked about this about dressing babies, absolutely. You know, and, and with that being said, that I'm sure they're thinking, uh, you know. It must be so freezing for them. They're so little. It's so, you know, another thing that I want to talk about is I don't want them to get sick because it's cold outside. Um, well, let's talk about one thing first. Let's talk about, I have kids who come in, you know, we've seen it for weeks now. We're it's seeing, so hot outside. Well, we're seeing, unfortunately, we're seeing, I hate summer colds. When I have them personally, I want to like crawl into a ball and get better. It's just horrible. You, you're hot. You have a fever. It's warm. You have out, chills. It's warm outside. And parents, you know, they're trying to do something that's good. And they're, they're putting their child in multiple layers because they're cold and they're having chills. They're wrapping them in multiple blankets. They're putting them in multiple layers. And it's not allowing that fever to naturally go away in addition to using Tylenol and ibuprofen. If you're over six months, you can use ibuprofen. But really important that you don't wrap your child while they're having a fever because it can potentially make it go higher. Those kids that come in with snowsuits, they may be well and they're from you know, some sort of non-fever issue. Their temperatures would be 101 because they're wrapped in the snowsuit. And they've been that way for hours. So really important to think about how you're dressing your child, um, what to do when your child has a fever. You know, you're not using the isopropyl alcohol. You want to make sure you're giving Tylenol and ibuprofen. You want to make sure they're, you know, they're in a layer of clothing and they are, you know, appropriately and you're not overdressing them. I watch my nurses go in and immediately start ripping blankets off with a kid with 104.5 degree temperature. Absolutely. Um, I've, I've definitely seen on many occasions during the summertime as well um, that they're a little overdressed and they start sweating and they don't realize that their child is sweating or like they're completely soaked because although they may not be dripping sweat, but their, their back, the back of their hair is just drenched. And that's something that we're going to talk about in one of our next episodes coming up, a summer safety. And, you know, babies have different and children have different ways they react. They're almost like the elderly. They don't deal with the heat like we deal with it. Um, They don't have the abilities to adapt the same ways. And it's very, very different. Uh, Going back to what I said, though, because I really want to mention this one is, yes, if it is cold outside, oh, blow dry your hair, you're going to catch a cold. Don't go out in the cold, um, wet or, you know, after a shower. Um, So being cold makes them sick. So they'll say, yeah, you're going to get a cold. You're going to get sick. Don't go out. I remember my grandmother saying that to me. Blow dry your hair. You can't go outside in the cold. You're going to get sick. So I'll kind of respond like we're on a game show. Myth or not a myth? This is a myth. You are not going to get sick from being outside. It has nothing to do with it. You get ill from viruses, from bacterias. It doesn't impact. The cold doesn't impact in any way. I wonder where that one came from. I don't know to be very honest. Like you always have kind of the answers of like where this came from and how it was derived, but like where did this come from? I would suspect. I'm it, sure there's an answer out there, but like if just I, thinking if off I the top of our head. If I had to guess, head, you know. 
There was that one person. People that- didn't have heat. People didn't have the things that we have now, the things we're comfortable with, electricity and air conditioning, and certainly exposure and can impact your immune system over time. Um, and where your immune system, if you're, you know, you're cold for days and days on end, your immune system is going to react. That makes and, a lot of sense. So that would be my guess, but I'll have to find out for the, one of the next episodes to tell everybody. <laughs> okay. Um, what a the last one, last, one last, uh, item that I really want to kind of bring up. And this is one of my favorites and I want to leave it for the last and I'm sure you hear this a lot, and I still hear this a lot, is that touching that soft spot in your baby's head is can hurt their brain. So that's a myth. And we talk about responding like a game show. So how many, so how many, like, is this a very, I, I, I know that you've heard this so many times. I mean, I just hear this. Um, you know, just I, from friends. I, I They're like, oh, wait, hold on. Don't go too close to the soft spot. You're going to hurt their brain. I think understanding, you know, what it really is, right? We actually look at it as a benefit, right? It's oh, a, yeah, it's we, great. We call, it a, we call it a window to the brain. So, like, if you have a head injury, we can feel. We actually feel with infection. We feel with other things, and we call it the pediatrician salute. Um, every time I get near a baby, even with socially – I immediately touch their soft I've spot. I've seen you do this. And, and this is the funniest thing that you actually, that you say this because I've seen you do this. We're all, we're all taught to you do just it. You just rub your finger over the top. You're like, oh, okay. In your mind, you're making a mental note of something. Uh, I'm making a note. Is it wide? Is Absolutely. it open? Is it closed? Yeah. And, you know, it's important to know a couple things. And we call it a fontanelle. Um, it's basically the soft spot. And it will, it, the brain allow, has sutures as well. And the combination of the fontanelle and the sutures, sutures are kind of lines in between or connections in between the bones that are open. And what it does is it allows your baby's brain to grow. You know, you want them there. It's a really good thing. And, you know, I think there is this presumption that there's this vulnerability, you know, with this soft spot. And certainly you don't want to drop your baby on the soft spot, but touching it is not going to hurt it in any way. And, the sutures and the fontanelle, there's there's a lot of protection to the baby's brain. You know, one of the things that I do, even as children get older, kids have bigger heads than adults. And they will gradually even out. We call them weeble wobbles. They, they fall over. You, you mean know. the ratio is bigger than Yeah, they have, they have large, large surface area compared to their bodies. Um, they lose heat through their brain, their heads um, differently than we do. So we have to think about it differently. But that fontanelle... Um, it's you can touch it, you know. It's not going to hurt anything. Sometimes it'll pulsate, um, and you can feel pulsations through it. Um, sometimes it will, you know, be feel a little more bulgy than it. And I'll use that word. It's probably not a great word to use. It we kind of use it. It bulges, and it can change as you're laying a baby down and you're sitting them up. It'll feel very different. I parents come in and say, you know what, my my baby's fontanelle was pulsating. Okay, that's normal. Okay. We'll check your baby out, make sure they're not, they don't look like an infection, and we send them home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes I'll put a baby flat and show a parent, and I'll put them upright. And typically it may have a little more fullness and feel a little more full when they're laying down versus being upright. And that's really gravity. Um, you know, and I think that um, what most people don't know is there's another soft spot on the back of the head. Um, and if you feel really closely, it's a little smaller, but you can feel it when they're young and that typically closes right around two to three months of age. And the larger soft spot in the front closes usually right around 15 to 18 months, somewhere in that ballpark. And as pediatricians, we describe them like we do many things and we use normal things that we feel each time, right? And I'm loving your hand gestures right now. You so, can't see it, guys, but he's, he's, he's being very animated here describing this. So I may describe a fontanelle as two fingertips. And, you know, it's kind of like we de- we describe a cervix when you're delivering. It's, you know, three fingertips, four fingertips. Um, and, you know, really your fingertip is somewhere in the vicinity of about two centimeters. And we that's how we describe fontanelles and we watch them over time. And there are diseases that are associated with fontanelles that are too big or too small. Um, you can have something called craniosynostosis if a suture closes too soon or a fontanelle closes too soon. So if something feels off, talk to your pediatrician. But 
to really answer that myth question, it's a myth. You're not going to mm-hmm. hurt your child. I mean, this is also just talking to your your pediatrician should be mentioning it at the your uh, your frequent checkups too. They talk about uh, you know the, the the phases of of this this closing. I shouldn't say the phases, the stages of which it's closing mm-hmm. and inform you of what they're actually looking for when they're touching their head and a lot of them just and i have seen or heard of this that like oh my pediatrician doesn't say anything to me they just make mental notes they type it in the computer and they go on with their day and that's something you don't want again just make sure your pediatrician is communicating with you because you don't know right especially if this is your first child like you don't know what you don't know also so make sure you have a pediatrician that is communicating with you and ask questions like oh what did you do right there like what is what what was what was that and if you find that they're being a little annoyed that you're asking them questions i would switch to a different pediatrician because you want to know everything that's going on and what they're checking for so that you can be on the lookout yeah i would add you are absolutely correct and you know i understand you know medicine has changed very much and pediatricians, like other physicians, are under a lot of pressure to move very quickly. And a lot of the time, I, I would tell you, any pediatrician loves giving what we call anticipatory guidance. All right, you're two months, you need to think about these things. And the American Academy of Pediatrics lists them out when we, get, when we train. You need to talk about development, you need to talk about feeding, you need to talk about urinating. I think an average visit, if I remember correctly, is four and a half to five minutes with the doctor. And most of the time, you don't even have enough time to uh, absorb that four minutes of information. And and it also is really the root of why we're doing this as well, right? Why are we doing this? Because we both realized that there wasn't that information out there. It's me seeing kids in the middle of the night that could have easily been told, you know, feeding antistory guidance or diaper antistory guidance. And we wanted to help families. So, you know... What do we view ourselves as, as an addition to the pediatrician? And we have parent coaching that we do, um, and we've been extremely successful with that. And we've helped parents that really want to have someone partner with them. We put our classes together to really help parents. And we did mom and doc talk to help parents. And it's really because we wanted to get that information out there, not have you use Dr. Google. Um, I recently read a study and it talks about new parents. And this was really eye-opening. I'm curious what you think about this. Um, the study was done, I believe, by one of the formula companies or the pamper company. You know, I think it was one of the diaper companies. And they said that the average new parent spends 1,400 hours in the first year um, really worrying stressfully about their child. They spend over 300 phone calls to a relative or a friend per year or over three to 400 frantic Google searches per year. That's disturbing. I don't understand that. I don't know whether my parents did that. I don't think they did. Um, they had people guiding them. They used Dr. Spock's book. I feel like it's really, again, comes down to, well, this is what I did as a parent, right? My mother told me this, you know, in uh, different generations, they might say that. And then we, again, we don't know what we don't know. And I feel like people are scared to ask. They're scared to ask questions. They're scared to call the pediatrician. Or to look stupid. Or to, look or to feel like they look stupid. Again, that's the fear. The fear is, oh, I don't want to call and then this be like something super silly like i already had my baby like i should know this i had i had three people tell me today in the emergency department they felt silly you should never feel silly if this is preventative because the worst case scenario is nothing is wrong and you learn something worst case scenario call your pediatrician talk to them don't you know i shouldn't say don't call a relative or do what you know dr chris just said um but have those people there for support more rather than a 100 percent direction because when you rely on one source too much or put your eggs all in one basket of dr google or a grandparent you know again medicine is developing quickly and changing and new things are you know what we just talked about today in advancement and changes so we call your pediatrician and talk to them. And, you know, in case of emergency, go see Dr. Chris, basically. Um, but it's it's really comes down to I feel like it's that fear of looking silly or that we don't know something. I would say ask questions. And 
I like to do this a lot when I go into my pediatrician, like when she would, like when my daughter was a uh, really little and I would go in and write on like, I don't know, a notepad on my phone, like, oh, I have a question really quick. Um, but I'm going to forget it by time the appointment comes. So I don't write it down on an envelope somewhere that's going to get lost. I wrote it down on like in my phone. So when I go to that appointment, I'm like, oh, wait, hold on. I have like 10 questions for you before you leave. And then she's boom, 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 boom. I I would go back and I'd say that's absolutely amazing. And as pediatrician, pediatric ER doctor, I respect that very much. And, you know, I'll put a plug in again for what we do, right? All those tools are there and we provide those tools and you can reach out to us if you want a tool to pick the right pediatrician, we have it. And there are lots of different things you can do. And I would say, you know, organizational tools and that preparation is really important. And as we've talked about, you're, you shouldn't ever feel silly. It's, it's your pride and joy. It's what you're there for. It's your job. Um, in addition to your other job and, we're there to help you. Um, and most times you're actually paying that doctor um, with insurance and they're getting paid to do their job and they should do it. And the ER doctors are getting paid to help you as well. So they should take that time and spend it with you. And most parents are really thankful when they get that time spent with them. Even when I go into the doctor for myself, I'm like, okay, what are you putting in me? What is that? And if they don't know, I'm like, well, I want you to tell me. You know, not necessarily a doctor, but like, you know, a nurse practitioner, somebody, anybody, nurse, whoever's anybody. touching me anybody. and they're doing something, I want to know what it is. And sometimes they do get a little frustrated because they're like, oh my God, I just want you to like sit here and not say anything and let me do my job. But I, I want to know. So, you know, for my next visit, somebody, oh, they did this to me, they did that, you know, I know, I want to know exactly what's going on. Same thing with my child. Yeah, I think it's very important. Um, so I'd like to thank everyone again for joining us um, for this episode. Um, as we've talked about in the past, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. Um, it's info at bloomerwellness.com. Um, please check out our website as well. Um, lots of tools and tips and um, ways that you can become that savvy parent. Um, I look forward to seeing you guys next time. Absolutely. Uh, Have a great day, guys. We'll talk soon in the next podcast. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for joining our mom and doc talk. Did any questions come up while you were listening? Share your questions with Dr. Christopher and Azure by visiting www.blueemeraldwellness.com. You can also connect with them on Instagram at wearekidshealthsecrets. Don't forget to rate the show on iTunes or Spotify so we can continue answering your most pressing kids' health and parenting questions. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode of Mom and Doc Talk. The content of this podcast, the opinions and information provided by the co-host and guests are for educational purposes only and should not replace the care provided by your child's physician. If you or your child is ill or having an emergency, please call 911 or seek care immediately.